Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Mai Ben Chen. I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming Bernard Keel, a lecturer at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Bernard. Uh, thanks, Van. Very good to be here virtually. Bernard's an expert historian on decolonization and nation building in post-World War II, especially concerning Malaya and Singapore. His PhD dissertation focuses on the trajectory of the Peranakan Chinese of the stray settlements in Malaya's path to independence. In addition, he also has interest in the Malayan emergency, transnational connections across the Malay world, and the end of empire in Southeast Asia. At NIAS, we just had the honor of hosting Bernard for a short visit and a lunch talk in November on his upcoming work regarding street food culture as nation branding. And of course, today we are very fortunate to be able to host him again on our podcast to hear more about his important research. So first thing first, for the audience members that might not be so familiar with your work, can you provide a brief overview of what your dissertation is about? Yeah, of course. Thanks for the lovely introduction, Ben, as well. Very kind. So in terms of what the dissertation is about, it's in a nutshell, looking at alternative imaginaries of the nation from the perspective of one community, the Pranakan Chinese, who are these hybridized overseas Chinese community that is born out of intermarriage between Chinese traders and local indigenous women, predominantly Malay, but also sometimes from other sub-ethnic groups in the Malay world, such as Javanese and Bugis. So what I look at in the dissertation and in sort of my upcoming monograph that's based on my dissertation is the ways in which the Pranakan Chinese framed their idea of the nation within this kind of cosmopolitan milieu and argued against the ethnocentric idea of the nation that ends up dominating Malaysian and, to a certain extent, Singaporean politics since independence in both countries. Wow, that is such a fascinating and also important research topic. Can you share a bit more with us about what motivated you to start your PhD project? Yeah, so there's a bit of a funny story as to how I ended up doing this project, which is I'm originally from a island off the coast of Malaysia called Penang. It's a fun little island that's kind of Singapore in a lot of senses, and that makes a lot of sense because of their historic links as part of the Strait Settlements, which was a particular kind of colonial entity during the British colonial period in Malaya. Uh, they were part of this shared administration called the Strait Settlements, and both being island port cities, they are very interconnected. But basically, what I first came across was a attempt by the island of Penang to secede from Malaya. We know it as Malaysia today, but back then it was known as Malaya. Penang tried to secede from Malaya during the 1940s and 1950s, which was something that I didn't even know about, even though I grew up in Penang myself and grew up in Malaysia myself. So once I started delving into that, there was this really interesting story that I picked up on with regards to the Pranakan and the fact that they were delineating this kind of sense of nation and wanting to approach decolonization from a different manner as to the elites that ended up winning power in the process towards independence. And so the project ended up being this kind of not not a counterfactual, but basically trying to reimagine the nation from the perspective of one of the many groups that put forward various visions of what Malaya 
should be like after the British leave and after sort of decolonization. So I kind of ended up on it kind of accidentally, but now it's become a major feature of my work where I really like challenging these kinds of conventional ideas of the nation and conventional narratives of how nations are built up and developed. Great. And so it appears that the Peranakan Chinese community is the main political actors, right, in your study. So can you explain a bit more about who they are and whether we might find similar communities elsewhere outside Malaya? Yeah, that's a really great question. So the Peranakan Chinese briefly are, as I was saying earlier, born of intermarriage between some of the earliest Chinese traders that came to Southeast Asia in the around the 15th century. And they sort of intermarried with local indigenous women as part of the fact that women or Chinese women were not allowed outside of China at the time via successive hygiene or sea bands by the successive Chinese dynasties, but also part of the reason why they intermarried local women was access to indigenous trading networks. But basically, the Peranakan developed out of this kind of initial intermarriage between these two ethnic groups, but they came to adopt other cultures as part of the kind of colonial period expansion of the British Empire in Malaya and Singapore as well. So they ended up becoming quite Anglophile, which is an interesting feature of their politics during the colonial period. But in terms of the Peranakan, they're definitely not unique in the sense that, well, they are unique in the sense that they have particular cultural practices, but they are part of a broader genre of overseas Chinese hybridized communities that we see across Southeast Asia and beyond, really. But within Southeast Asia, some really useful comparisons are the Peranakan in Indonesia, which are similar to the Peranakan in Malaya slash Singapore, but with more of a Dutch influence because that was the colonial power. There's also the Chinese mestizos in the Philippines. There is the Phuket Baba in Thailand. And there's also the Chinese Meti in Vietnam as well. So there's a lot of interesting parallels between the Pranakan and other overseas Chinese groups across the region. I see, I see. So before delving into your main findings for your research, I'm also curious about your main research methods for the dissertation. Can you share a little bit about your research method? Yeah. So as an historian, the main avenue, which most of us do is through archival research, which I did do quite a lot of as part of my dissertation, as part of my broader research, but something that I spent a lot of time doing, which often has mixed reception, is I spent a lot of time looking through newspapers and other periodicals, especially the periodicals produced by the Prarakan Chinese themselves. I thought that they were a particularly rich trove of information that hasn't really been examined in the full detail that they should be. So it's this really great publication produced by the Pranakan themselves during the 19th and 20th centuries called the Straits Chinese Magazine, which was founded, edited, written up by various Pranakan authors, where they kind of articulated quite a lot of interesting ideas about themselves, but also about how they conceptualize the nation and belonging within the empire. But in terms of methodologies, I focus a lot on looking at textual material and following along the historical precedents set by other historians of reading against the archival grain of colonial records. I also took Anne Laura Stoller's ideas, the heart of reading along the archival grain. It's about finding the stuff that's missing in the archives, but also reading the archives in a way that tells you more about marginalized groups like the Pranakan, who do feature sometimes, but are also kind of conspicuous by their absence in some places. I see. And so in terms of the different archival materials that you worked with, can you share a bit in terms of how they might differ from one another? What are their pros and cons? And what are the different insights that they provide for you? 
Yeah. So one of the biggest problems of archives is that because they're very curated records in the sense that they have to go through a process of government deciding what to archive in the first place, as opposed to materials that they destroy. But also the fact is that archivists often make quite deliberate decisions about what they include and exclude in terms of what they save as part of the national record, as part of the historical past. One of the tricky things with using archives is that they tend to reflect particular Biases is not the right word to use, but they, they reflect particular perspectives, and these tend to be elite perspectives, whether they be political elites, economic elites, social elites, but they tend to replicate elite perspectives because of the virtue in which archives are created as government institutions. So that's one of the main challenges with using the archive, which is why I spent a lot of time delving into periodicals and other kind of documents produced by a community, by the Veronican community in this instance, because they provide an interesting kind of contrast sometimes, but also oftentimes they provide a complement to what you can find in the archival record. One of the strengths about the British archival record in particular is that the British, aside from the fact that they have a whole hidden archive that still has a lot of secret documentation in them in Hansville Park, they do tend to collect almost everything and allow researchers to have access to them. So if you can make your way to the National Archives in Kew, which is obviously a barrier for a lot of people that live in sort of further away places and may not have the resources to do so. But if you are able to get to the National Archives in Kew, they try to make it as accessible as possible, which is one of the really great strengths of being an archival researcher is that you have this massive corpus of information that you kind of have to wade through. But oftentimes you find a lot of fantastic material as part of it. So those are some of the strengths and weaknesses of archival records and why it's worth using them in concert with other sources rather than just relying on them. I'm, I'm not a very big fan of old school empiri empirical empiricist kinds of research which says that if you don't use an archive, that's not, then, you know, you're not really doing a history. I think there's a lot of problems with those kinds of perspectives. Yeah. And then talking about the more rewarding part, you mentioned that you also found some fascinating bits and pieces and when you're doing your archival work. Can you share maybe some examples of those surprising findings? Yeah. So one thing that I didn't think that I would come across was seeing the kind of sometimes colonial officers would present quite private thoughts in official documentation that they circulate with each other. So I did spend time looking at the private papers of individual colonial officials as well. But it's really funny. One of my favorite things to do in the archive is look at the little minutes that are handwritten. So the marginalia around the archival record itself, not just the actual physical typewritten document, but oftentimes you would see colonial officials write sort of quite personal insights into their own daily lives or sort of their thoughts on particular leaders. So I'm just trying to remember a specific example, but oftentimes you'd see stuff like colonial officials making snide comments about their partners that they're supposed to be handing power over to as part of the transfer of sovereignty with the path to independence. And so you see a lot of this interesting contrast between the very public things that senior officials like the Secretary of State for the Colonies or the Commissioner General for Southeast Asia, they would say all these positive things about independence and say that how they're working in partnership with the incoming government. And, you know, we consider them friends, et cetera, et cetera. And then you'll see snide comments like he's a bit of a loose cannon or something along those lines. So that's one of my favorite things to find in the archives. And it's not related to dissertation, but one of my favorite stories that I came across while researching the Millennium Emergency as part of the political context and background of all these things happening was the High Commissioner for Malaya, a former general by the name of Gerald Templer was put in charge of the colonial government. And one of the things that he did as the governor was he decided to fix up a broken statue of 
Queen Elizabeth that he found in the kind of high commissioner's lodging. And the way that he did that was he basically sent it off to the dentistry department of the military and getting them to do touch up on it. So a bunch of dentists use dental putty to fix up the broken nose of Queen Elizabeth, which I thought was just a really funny anecdote. Indeed, indeed. Moving forward, I wanted to switch our attention toward the findings of your research. So now that I know that you have worked with and incorporated many different types of archival materials into your research, can you share whether this approach has paid off in terms of leading to novel or unexpected findings or conclusions? Maybe not necessarily from the methodology itself, in the sense that I don't necessarily think that I've done anything too novel. I'm part of a broader wave of current generation of historians that have pushed back against this idea that everything has to just be the archives. Uh, Increasingly, you see lots of the embrace of oral history and other kinds of sources in order to augment official records. But in terms of the main findings, I think one of the key interventions I try to make is to challenge the kind of idea of the national narrative that tends to dominate, not just in Malaysia and Singapore, but also tends to dominate lots of places in Southeast Asia, but beyond as well. Every country has its own kind of national narrative about how it developed as a nation. And I think it's worth critiquing these kinds of ideas because they tend to be manufactured versions of the past and they tell particular stories to benefit particular groups. So what I try to do in my dissertation and and as part of the monograph is kind of challenge the stock standard argument in Malaysian history that the nation that emerged in 1957 was kind of inevitable. The fact that there was this kind of social contract that had to be made that entrenched special privileges for one community in exchange for other communities having certain benefits like citizenship by birth, that sort of thing. I think it's a bit of a cop-out because what you see when you actually delve deeper into these kinds of things is that you realize that there are plenty of people that challenge these kinds of ideals and attempt to bring to life much more progressive, much more inclusive ideas of what the nation state ought to be and how much it should be representative of its population, like like in the case of the Pranakan, but they're only really one part of the story. I'm really hoping that my work kind of inspires more researchers into Malaysia and Singapore to think carefully about the fact that what we have today was not always inevitable. And the fact is, it's important for us to recognize the important ways in which different communities, different individuals, different groups try to bring to life different ideas of the nation and what lessons that holds for us in the contemporary period as well. Can you share with us a snippet of how the Peranakan Chinese community challenged this predominant narrative of nation branding in Malaya at the time and whether they had any types of allies or supporters from other communities? Yeah, so the way in which the Peranakan, the main way in which the Peranakan challenged the ethnocentric version of the nation was through the secession movement, the Penang secession movement, or as it's sort of known, which is when Penang tries to leave the Federation of Malaya in order to reconstitute the Strait Settlements. One of the things that I try to argue with regards to the community and also challenging existing historiography is demonstrate that the Peranakan didn't just do that, they also were engaged in other political activities. So some of the other examples include There's something that happens called the anti-federation movement in 1948, which is basically when the Federation of Malaya was first set up, there was a intercommunal multi-ethnic group of organizations that attempted to challenge the entrenchment of special provisions for the Malay community. And this includes sort of like people from the Malay community as well, who thought that this was an unfair and unequal means of establishing 
a new kind of nation state at that time. And so what I argue is that the Pranakam played a leading role in this sort of movement as well. That's not really been acknowledged, which is really interesting because one of the things that you see in the historiography is this kind of repetition of this myth that the anti-federation movement was basically just the communist front. There were indeed communists within the front, within the coalition, but they weren't exactly the dominant force. And it was really a genuinely multi-ethnic organization that brought along all these different camps that were part of this marriage of convenience in order to challenge this idea of the nation. So that's one example alongside the Penang Session movement. The other one is also the way in which the Pranakan did manage to secure some semblance of the nation that they wanted was through the lobbying of the Reconstitutional Commission, the Royal Commission that's set up in 1956, uh, just before independence, that examines questions of what the future constitution of Malaya should look like. And the Pranakan, alongside their allies in other communities, sent through quite detailed petitions outlining what they wanted out of a independent Malaya in terms of the constitution. And that ends up having quite cascading effects in terms of providing citizenship birth rights to non-Malay communities and also having protections like having the Yang de Portuan Basar at the time, which is now known as the Yang de Portuan Agong, um, or the kind of paramount ruler of Malaya being in charge of taking care of not just Malay privileges, but also ensuring that non-Malay communities are protected in the country. So a range of different political pragmatic actions in order to challenge the ethnocentric vision of the nation. I see, yeah. So for my next question, I wanted to understand more in terms of to what extent do you think this campaign by the Peranakan Chinese community has been successful and where do you think they have failed and why is it important for us to study and understand this case? So in terms of success or failure, most of their campaigns failed in the sense that they didn't end up securing the nation state that they wanted post-independence. So the formulation that we have today of post-independence Malaysia is a kind of communal nation. It's one that's kind of centered around this idea of the separateness of the various communities. That's not to say that on an everyday basis that people don't get along, but within the kind of broader scheme of things, Malaysia still continues to be a fairly communal country, whereby the three main ethnic groups, the Malays, the Chinese, and the Indians, do have very distinct boundaries between them. So in their quest to achieve a kind of cosmopolitan, deracinated Malaya, the Pranakan failed. But in the kind of final stretch towards independence, they did manage to secure certain things that they were pushing for once they realized that they weren't able to bring to life the cosmopolitan nation that they wanted, which was they managed to secure citizenship rights, which was a really big sticking point during the after independence, where at a certain point, certain political parties were actually arguing for the fact that Indians and Chinese were not natives of Malaya, therefore they should not get any independence at all, not just citizenship birthright, but also the fact that they shouldn't even be allowed to be naturalized as citizens. So those kinds of questions do get resolved in a more positive way in the sense that Malaysian, Chinese and Malaysian Indians today benefit from having citizenship rights. They're full-fledged citizens of Malaysia. In terms of kind of the lessons to learn out of this, I think there's a couple of things. One is the ways in which we need to re-examine and think through the ways in which nations develop stories about themselves and sort of the kind of how the path to independence and decolonization isn't always as straightforward as it's often told in these national narratives, right? There's a very slippery kind of messy way in which decolonization happens. 
which a lot of other scholars have written about where I drew inspiration to look at the Malaysian and Singaporean case study from is the fact that decolonization is not this clean break between the colonial state to the post-colonial state. There is a lot of messiness inherent in different individuals and groups challenging for power and wanting different paths for the country that they sort of win power or don't win power in. The other thing that's worth thinking about in a more local context is the Pranakan themselves, in the sense that modern-day Pranakan are seen almost predominantly as a cultural group, in the sense that they're really fascinating culturally in terms of their cultural practices, like poetry, dandang sayang, which is sort of love ballads, and also sort of like dancing and food. That's also a really big thing with the Pranakan community. But I think it belies the fact that this was once a really important political community that had an active agenda and did spend time outside of agreeing with the colonial state. They actually did spend time challenging the colonial state, challenging what would become the post-colonial state and trying to achieve better conditions for not just their own community, not just Pranagan themselves, but for their fellow Malayans slash Malaysians, depending on what time period we're talking about as well. So I think it's important to kind of recover that past and recognize the fact that they were far more important players than we give them credit for today. Indeed. So returning to present-day politics, as ultra-nationalist rhetoric and political movements are increasing at an alarming rate in Asia and beyond, as we can all observe, what lessons on nation-building do you think your research offer for scholars and general audience concerned about this development? I think the key point to take out of my research for any contemporary lessons, which is something that I'm a bit worried to say because historians tend to be a bit worried about making pronouncements about the present or the future. We tend to live in the past in more ways than one. But I think the main thing that I would argue is the importance of recognizing the constructed notion of the past and the construction notions of the nation and how particular groups create narratives that serve their particular goals. And especially in terms of ultranationalism, patriotism in general, they tend to create a very polished, curated vision of the past about how things used to be better in the good old days, the nation used to be stronger, et cetera, et cetera. Or they flip it out the other way. like they would argue that things were much worse under a particular ethnic group or under a particular national construction of the past. And so I think the key thing to focus on is the fact that it's not something that we have to accept. It's something that we should critique and something that we should spend time pushing back against, especially notions of ultranationalism that tend to be cloaked with ethnic division and ethnic hatreds. And I think it's worth in a place as diverse as Southeast Asia, but also this applies to lots of places elsewhere, recognizing the fact that the various communities do have a stake in the nation. We shouldn't exclude people on the basis of notions of whether they're migrants or whether or not they were native born or whether or not they come from a particular ethnic group. I think what my research hopefully shows is that ideas of the nation can and should be inclusive and focused on the ways in which people belong rather than the ways in which we should exclude people on the basis of different categories, be it class, race, ethnicity, national identity, religion, etc. Yeah, that is such a great point. To end our podcast, I now would like to ask you a bit more in terms of your upcoming projects and publications, which uh, personally I'm very curious about. So can you share a bit more with us? Yeah, so I do have an upcoming publication. I'm not sure when it's supposed to come out, but it's been accepted to press. It's just a matter of waiting in line for all the other articles to pass through um, in the Journal of World History, which is following on the theme of what we've talked a lot about today, uh, looking at 
the Pranakan through the lens of cosmopolitan ideas of the nation. So this one is more focused on the colonial period and the ways in which the Pranakan developed their cosmopolitan senses of identity and belonging as a result of living in the port city of Penang and how the intersections of intra-trans and extra-imperial networks in the city of Georgetown really shaped their identity and really shaped their ability to traverse different sociocultural worlds and, and how that influenced their ideas of the nation. It's kind of a global urban history approach to studying Penang, which tends to be a little bit forgotten as a port city because of the dominance of Singapore. So it looks at two overlooked things. One is the Pranakan and two is Georgetown, the city in Penang itself as well. That's the kind of upcoming publication. And sort of as Van mentioned in her introduction of me, I'm also looking at a new project that studies street food as nation branding in the context of Malaysia and Singapore, particularly interrogating the idea that there's something quintessentially national about hawker culture as whether or not it's quintessentially Singaporean or quintessentially Malaysian. I'm interested in kind of tracing the development of street food culture as this kind of hawkers have historically been seen by governments as these kinds of public menaces, but they transition into becoming everyday staples for ordinary Malaysians and Singaporeans. And now as of about 2019, they're now Michelin star winning kind of gourmands, right? So I'm really interested in tracing that development and also looking at it through the perspective of how both Malaysia and Singapore have kind of leveraged street food as part of their tourism campaigns and how they sell a particular idea of themselves through street food. Thank you so much for sharing, Bernard. It's always a pleasure to learn from your research. I'm Mai Venturen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.